Everybody, oh my God! Whoop, that's a little hot. That's a little hot. How's everybody doing? I tracked this podcast literally two weeks ago to the day with the dear dude, my deep, 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 deep homie, Mister John Jetter. Oh yeah. Mm-mm. Been waiting for this one. It's a good one. John brings it. Brings it hard. This is a, this is a learning one. Just get out the notebook and just. Just study up with Double J. Only I call him that. No one else calls him that. John Jetter, Right Angle Productions, Right Angle Recording. This is going to be a good one. <clears throat> and in the week that I was not here, I just went to Hawaii. Oh, dude. The greatest place on earth. The best sunshine, the best air, the best water, and the best like possibility of uh, volcanic activity, earthquake, tsunami coming to kill you. But it's definitely like the best place to hang out. Shredded the gnar, surfed canoes at Waikiki, bro. Oh my god. Body surfed on the big island at Hapuna Beach, dude. I was like the Kelly Slater of body surfing out there. Perfect little two to three foot little just and because <laughs> I say that like I just don't miss a wave when I'm body surfing because I know exactly when to go now. I've studied the waves, bro. I know when to jump. And hey, guess what? It's sooner than you think you should. That's what I have to say. Keep paddling, right? When they, when you're first learning how to surf, they're just like, dude, you haven't caught the wave yet. Keep paddling. Keep paddling. There's so many metaphors for life in uh, surfing. So anyway, I could do a whole solo shred on uh, Hawaii, just how often awesome it is. Um, but never mind that. We're getting to this. We're getting right into this one. Johnny. No one really, honestly, I'm the only person who calls him that. John. John Jetter. I'm trying to keep this pro-fesh. He is a... He's really one of the most insane musicians ever. Uh, He has an incredible... He's like this super deep, deep, deep musician, which... And he has a super deep aesthetic, and he's super technically skilled. So, like, a combination of all... I've never literally ever worked with anybody in this studio that is even on par with John at all the levels. Like, no matter... In this, he's leading this league in six statistical categories. And he gives the hottest interviews. Um, because when you work with someone who has, like, such great ears and an aesthetic, and he can hear ideas so quickly... Also, if you have an idea, he can so quickly execute ideas. There's no one like John. There's literally, I've, I've worked with bazillions and bazillions of engineers and producers in different capacities all over New York for 20 years now. And there is only one John. Ooh. And I knew that. I've been saying that for years. I've been saying that forever. It's only a matter of time until John is the biggest hoss in the game. I mean, he's doing all these major label mixes now, so he's the guy. So I'm very thankful for my relationship with John because we're buddies. We hang socially, and then uh, we get to make music together. Literally, it's 12.59 p.m. on a Friday, and I told him I would be there at 1. But I just took a yoga class with Josh, 
at the yoga room, the most intense yoga class. I sweat all over my mat. I was honestly crying. It's like public torture, but you feel so good afterwards. I feel so good. So much space in these hips, in these hips right now. So, but I really wanted to record this now because while I'm sitting there working with John, I can be bouncing this down. I'm doing double work because that's how it goes, baby. After Hawaii and I'm feeling the aloha, I'm doubling up on the work. Um, yeah, check this out. I'm going to play you in with a brand, 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 brand new track that John and I worked on. We recorded it probably in the fall. Maybe even the spring. I don't know. Time is a funny mistress. I recorded it with Andy Martinick on drums, who's on two podcasts ago, or the last one. And then Seth Ondercheck, who's also on Secret Famous. Two hilarious dudes. And they're like my metal friends. And so I'm in a text chain with them and Manish, and it's like our metal text chain. It's like, dude, ministry's coming. Or whomever. We saw Marilyn Manson together. We saw NH Nails together. I think we have plans. Who are you? We're going to the show in July. Some sweet metal show. Anyway, that's beyond the point. These homies came because uh, they're just so homies, and I was like, I want to. We want to do some tracks, and we did a track, and uh, it was a couple tracks. But this one, this was really why because I was given assignment to my songwriters of like to write a song in a style or by an artist that you really love, but you could probably, you'd never do that. So, like, probably one of my favorite styles is, like, the female-fronted piano genre. Like, I can't, I can never sing like Whitney Houston, even though she she probably does play piano. Any any amazing female vocalist, okay? Like, it's just, it's never going to be in my wheelhouse. Clearly, when you listen to this track, you'll be like, that's a lot of melodyne. But, so I wrote this song in homage to Tori Amos, because it took me a long time to understand Tori Amos. But then when I got her and really getting deep in the tracks, I was like, this shit is so ridiculously good on all levels. Tori Amos, just like John Jenner, no matter how you cut the pie, man, she's a sick singer, sick piano player, great lyrics, great melody, like just all-time greatest songwriter ever so I was a little obsessed with her for a second and I have a piano at home I'm always working on piano like I love just playing a bunch of piano every day I'm getting a text from Bonin he's he's really trying to hit me up tonight should I bring amp stand war machine he should always bring the war machine Dan always bring the war machine how is that even a question bring the war machine brother that's the name of his keyboard anyway so I, 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 I ha- I've written a couple piano ballads in this style um, over the past couple years just to, as a, like a demonstration for my students. Um, and now I didn't ever like love any of them enough, but I always I kind of liked this one. And I was like, dude, this is going to be my first piano ballad. And I want to make like a video. So this is probably going to come out even way before the song comes out. So Andy and Seth are on it. We did it at John's Space, which is three floors above me. And then we laid down some metal guitars and, like, cool synths and all that, blah, 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 blah. And the track was pretty much done, and I was like, it's missing something. What is it missing? And it's missing Emily Danger, who's coming here Monday night at 
to do a podcast. And I, she, she's like a power vocalist. She is the closest thing I can think of to Whitney Houston. Like she can just, she can sing all styles, but then she has all that like top end Mariah, super power, super crazy. So I was like, dude, we need like a great gig in the sky solo, which I perceived of in the bridge, this descending chromatic part. I was like, this just needs like, and like I would do it when we were doing it just when I was writing the tune, but I knew ultimately. And so you can always, it's like uh, my friend Chris Abad always says, you, you, you always get a killer vocalist to add to your track, and it takes the track. It takes, the, it's like the frosting, bro. You just dry cake, put frosting, boom. It's always the frosting, you know what I mean? I, it's why Abby Payne sings on all my tracks. Rebecca Havlin sings on all the Downstate Darlings tracks. Both those two, they come in, they let harmonies, little things, and it's just like, the track to the next level. And this is the first time, I, and Emily hit me up. Clearly the coffee's going, because probably none of these stories are making sense, but... Emily came in and just took this track to the next level. Oh, it was it was just she sang like she can really do the rock thing and it like kind of add some like Alice in Chains like Lane Stanley, Jerry Cantrell sounding harmonies to my already existing like lame parts. But when you add an amazing singer's voice, it sounds rad. And then John's mix is out of control. And then so I'm sitting here thinking what song we should play in an outro and in a secret, a secret metal project that John and I did, I was thinking that would be a cool outro track. We had a band called Quotient and uh, I think we did four songs and there's this song called Waves and Rachel actually wrote the song. I love this song. It's one of the most ridiculous metal songs I've ever been involved in. Very, like, Meshuggah influence. I'm going to go tell John right now, because I'm five minutes late to meeting him upstairs, but I was like, I am recording this goddamn intro Ooh. beforehand. He'll be like, you put the metal track on there? Um, it, it, that shit's probably, like, seven years old now, five years old. It's really good. Ah, uh, so please, please, please enjoy John. I call him my personal, like, Yoda. Like, he just, he's very important, special soul. Clearest thinker I probably know. Uh, really, really, really. And if you need anything done with audio, it's John. Any question, dude, mix, master, obviously, that's what he makes a living doing, and he's the best at it. I also think, like, People had notions of what his mixes were back in the day. I'm like, John can mix any style. You just have to be able to communicate that him. He is the shredder of mixing. He's like the ultimate. Speaking of, not only, I, I'm sure maybe I did mention this, but he shreds guitar. He plays keys. He's it, He'll write the harmony parts for me. I'll be like, oh, dang, that was good. John's a man. I can't speak highly of, no, enough of him. Um, check out his studio. Please enjoy this fascinating podcast, and um, I guess I might record the intro later. The outro. You know, I'm like, I'm, take it or leave it with the outro, man. You know what I mean? Maybe I'll record the tiniest outro right now, but people are like, you got to have the outro, and I'm like, well, I feel like the music speaks for itself at the end. You know what I mean? I don't know if there always needs to be an outro, but... uh 
couple people are like, no, man, you need the outro. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It feels like a little incomplete without the outro. <laughs> you get to the end, there's a track. Really. And so the outro would just be going, one, because all me and my crew of friends say one in a high-pitched voice. And that's like a pure expression of love when you go like, one. Okay. All right. I'm seven minutes late to go meeting John upstairs. I hope everybody stays wonderful and delicious and just nutritious and eats healthy, real food and not too much of it. I think that's key. You come back from vacation, you're like, hey, hey, too much, drink, too much. You're like, you got to go back to cut the meal they serve you in half because it's way too much food. In fact, just order one entree, okay? Just one entree and split it between the seven of you, you greedy Americans. What? Anyway, please enjoy the man, the greatest mixer master engineer, the fastest draw in the East, in the West, in the world. John Jenner, everybody. Have a wonderful day.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, sometimes I pop a seltzer. I'm a little subdued at this drunk circle. I'll pop, I'll pop it, dude. It's tradition of the show. Ladies and gentlemen, he's here. My dear friend, literally dearest friend. Uh, John, I can't, how highly can I speak of you? He does everything in music. Guitar, piano, mixing, mastering, teaching it, playing it. He's a Yoda. He's an intellect, a reader, a writer, a thinker. He's the best. He's John Judder. He's my dear friend. I've been making music with him for a thousand years. I was like, John, you have to come out here. You are real secret famous. Oh, Lord. <laughs> um, I played last night. We played last night. It was like Martin, Brooklyn Sugar Company, Evan Watson, Beesky, then me. And I thought, John's probably, I think you've worked on everybody's music there. Yeah, I, that's true. Um, <laughs> yeah, th that's, that's quite a lineup. That's quite a lot of... How was I'm it? It was great. It was a good night. 15 years of Rockwood. So if I sound like I'm lost a little bit, I think you just end up... I don't actually... I, I was thinking that I practice singing and playing, and then I get to a show and just, like, scream at an audience and try to make them laugh the whole time. Yeah, like, but I, that's, that's, that's what's great about that's it. That's its own thing. I know. But I was literally coming home, and I was like, I was thinking, like, John works with basically everybody in... You work in so many different scenes, too. Yeah. I think I've been very fortunate that way, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, yeah, how, how professionally you just probably describe yourself, because I know you so intimately, you describe yourself, professionally you're a mixer master probably, right? Yeah, I mean, most of my work these days, um, you know, I still do a little bit of other stuff too, but most of my work these days is mixing for labels or mastering for independent artists. Uh, I think those are the parts of the process where I'm the most useful. Yeah. And where I can do good work on really any style of music. All right, here's a great way to start this off. For the layman, let's say you're trying to explain this to a non-musician. Yep. Explain the difference between a mixing situation mm -hmm. and a mastering situation. Cool. I can do that. So um, when you're mixing, you have all the individual elements of the song. Yeah. You know, your drums, your guitars, your bass, your vocals, and any other layers, and you treat each layer individually so that they blend together in a way that is technically acceptable and sounds like what people expect from a record, but also frames the vision of the song and maximizes the emotional impact of the song. And then mastering is usually not working from the individual elements it's working from the finished mix that's already been mixed by someone mm -hmm. and attempting to, first of all, enhance it a step or two further. But also, in mastering, you are looking at the overview of the record if there are multiple songs. When you're mixing, by definition, you're mixing one song at a time. One song at a time, yeah. You're mastering the record as a record. You're jumping around, hearing how different songs match up against other songs. You're balancing them. You're deciding... When should they be more consistent and cohesive versus when is a little bit of ebb and flow part of the vibe? You yeah. know, it's it's a little it's a the last step of final polishing and it's the overview of the album. Yeah, it's <clears throat> yeah. I think that's. I mean, even even to musicians, I think that's a hard thing. You're like, what? I just spent all this time. Yes, <laughs> it. it sounds great. What do you? What do I have to master it? You know what I mean? No, but, but you really do because. But it really the, does make a difference when you get it done right, right? Like. Well, again, it's... Not Lander or whatever bullshit. I mean, theoretically, like, with a single song, I still think mastering is beneficial 
but maybe not required. Yeah. As soon as there are multiple songs in a project, an EP or an album, or even just like a two-song, you know, A-side, B-side on a single, as soon as there's more than one song, it's mandatory. You need you need the first impression from a really skilled listener, and you need them to hear the flow of the record. You need them to be able to adjust the flow of the record. Yeah. There you go. You heard it here her first. You heard it here first. You heard it here first from a professional... So I'm always excited. Still, I can't, it's, it's, it's challenging. And I was thinking of you yesterday, John, as a quick sidebar, because I'm so excited about this Raging as a Machine thing that oh, I yeah, put I, on Evil Empire. Yeah, their best record by far. I think it's the best record, too. It, that's hard to say, but I still... It just sounds so good, dude. Like, well, what the hell? Like, what is the magic in that? It's just drums, bass, guitar, and voice, you know? Like, so it one that's, so effing good. That's Brendan O'Brien coming on board at a point in time when he was at the absolute top of his game in that world. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, he was producing Pearl Jam, he was producing Stone Temple Pilots, he was making all of these amazing-sounding records in that era. Um, but also, I think that their music, it's, it's easily their most raw record. You know, it was recorded largely in the rehearsal space. <laughs> Um, oh, that's right, because it's the picture in the liner. It was just that one yeah. picture of them. Yeah. But it totally fits the vibe, and I think that the the raw production just meshes perfectly with the music and the content. I think it is the album with Zach's most specific lyrics. He often references very specific historical or sociopolitical things rather than the other records, which are not always, but often, you know, a little more abstract. Um, and overall, sort of general ideas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's specific, specific. I mean, we could talk about this for two hours. We no, just, we I, just know, talk about I, rage. Know, um, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I just Evil Empire was the one where, like, the reference. Like sometimes you had to go and look up the references. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like, like on on the first record, he talks about you know they went after King when he spoke out on Vietnam, and everyone knows who Martin Luther King is, and everyone knows what the Vietnam War was. Like it's still it's still a brilliant song. Yeah. But you don't have to go Google, right? You, you, you can. It's right there. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's in the song title. <laughs> right. So for me, though, like, you know, first time I heard uh, "Wind Below," I had no idea what the Sotil tribe was. I had to go learn it. Um, a lot of people may not know, you know, in um, what's the other song? Uh, Vietnam. Um, a lot of people might not know where Managua is. Yeah. Um, um, when he talks about Ali, a lot of people might not know which Ali. He's referring to. You might have to go look it up. And <laughs> the it's the you know the depth well, the depth of the lyrics and just the the raw like ass kicking of the record. It's unbelievable. And how tight they sound as a band. Jeez, it, Louise. It's like it's like if Led Zeppelin was backing up a rapper. It's the perfect. It's that blend of loose but tight at the yeah, same time. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Clearly, probably not recorded to a click, right? Um, I actually don't know. I've never really I've never really like sat down and. Yeah, like tried to figure it EP out. Um, That'd be interesting. But a band like what, what you're saying, like a band that that's so tight, like they don't. Why would you put them on a click? Yeah, it's. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if it wasn't. Um, it just that record feels so good. Yeah, that's awesome. That is awesome. And we could talk about records forever. Yep. <clears throat> the uh, the story that I think a quick story I'm going to tell you right now because this is funny. I saw Manish and he's shooting Rockwood 15. He was there. So he's there like every night. Every or? night, and I saw him on night. I think it was night eight, and he's like, yeah, I've seen 77 shows. 
I was like, oh man, wow. I was tired. We got in the car and he put on undertow by Tool. I was like, this man has no, his battery for music never ends, dude. I was so, like. Undertow's sweet, but for me, Tool's, you know, Tool's moment was Lateralis. Yes, I know Lateralis is your favorite record. But there, what I was, and then I was like really thinking about it, but it, Tool does have like a meditative kind of quality where, yeah, where it doesn't have to it's heavy. be in your face. It's heavy, but it's also sometimes droning. Yeah. It's also sometimes repetitive. Um, you know, and again, for me, that lateralis again, you know, um, disposition and reflection are pretty much, disposition is like five minutes straight of one groove. Um, reflection is 11 minutes straight of yeah. a groove. And, and it's so deep. So... That being, we're going back into our childhood records. Let's see, we're going back. How did John Jetter, when did you first pick up the guitar? You're like the classic, classic 90s kid. It was like, oh, uh, I want to be a musician. Yep. Or were you classically trained? I don't even, tell me your story. Tell the people your story, Johnny. I was four. You were four? My mom got me piano lessons. And like most four-year-olds, I didn't care. And it didn't stick. <laughs> um, we tried again when I was eight. Uh, I stuck with it, but I didn't love it. And then at piano, yeah, 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 yeah. And clarinet, bass clarinet in the school band. Yep. And then when I was twelve, I thought that guitar just looked a lot cooler. I was, you know, that was the point in time where I first started to understand, you know, what a rock band was and how the different sounds on a rock record all combined to make the CD that I was listening to. Yeah. And my dad had an old acoustic guitar from the 70s and he still had it around and so I started playing and it was cool but then you know I wanted distortion so a few months later we got an electric. Woo! And you know that was the beginning of the end. Was there one kind of like early artist right there that you were like that's it? Was it like Yeah, I mean so you said you were 12? The first the first real records that I really got into. That you were like I have to I have to do yeah. this. Um Stone Temple Pilots, Purple. Um, yeah. Pearl Jam's 10. Uh, Soundgarden, Super Unknown. Uh, Green Day, Dookie. That's that's it. See, we're all... That's it. And then, you know, after that came Nirvana and a few other bands. And then I moved, you know, toward the heavier stuff, toward metal. Yeah. When did your metal phase come? Just a year or two later. You um, came pretty fast. Yeah, so. when, when I was 13, I, you know, by that point, I was, I was into Metallica. And my dad was a good sport. Took me to a Metallica concert. Sat. You saw Metallica in 8th grade, dude? I saw them. No, I think it might have been seventh grade, even. Um, oh, that's a that's a life changing event. Yeah, they were. It was the tour for Load. Oh my God, dude! And it was the, you know, my parents had taken me to like, like an Allman Brothers concert, which you know, respect, love the Almonds, but like yeah. as as a thirteen year old kid. Yeah, you were. It's maybe something totally psyched up about the Almonds yet. It's something different to. Um, I mean, also, when I saw the Almonds, I think I was, like, seven. I think my parents took me, and I fell asleep. Oh, that doesn't, yeah, that no, doesn't really count. I fell asleep. Yeah, yeah, you're, t- you're, you're little, yeah. But as a 13-year-old playing guitar, seeing Metallica in a 15,000-person arena. It, in Albany? Uh, yeah, yeah, at, um... At the War Memorial, or whatever it is, the, I mean, like it's the had, hockey it's, arena? It's like, had so many different names. It was the Pepsi uh, thing at one point. Yeah. It's been, like, a... I think it was the Knickerbocker Arena before it had any kind of corporate branding behind it. Um, but it's it's had like six different. But names. it's, but I I've seen a show at that venue and I think it's cool because it's not like a huge arena. It's actually a right. smaller arena, so right. it's even more impactful when you're. Like, it's arena show yep. huge, but like 
it's like a, it's, yeah. a, it's a really great place to see a show. Yeah. And I had no idea that concerts could be like that and, <laughs> and feel like that, you know? Do they have pyrotechnics and the oh, lights yeah. and the costumes? And, and Yeah, and Hollywood? just like two and a half hours of amazing metal, you know? Wait, wait, wait. So is the Load Tour the movie one? Some kind of monster? That came later, That came right? a little later. Um, I don't... I'm a little hazy on give the me chronology. Give me fuel, give me fire, give me that vagina's arm. Right? That, that, yeah. that was probably the hit from that record? Uh, well, that was Reload. That was Reload. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, people hate Unload and Reload, but I actually think that Metallica had really great moments as a bluesy hard rock band. I think that people just... You know, I think some some people don't want a band to change, but when you're when you're 45 or something, it's it's a little silly to make the same riffs you made when you were 20. You know, <laughs> I I hope I'm not doing that. Like I thought some of the song "Bleeding Me" was a sick song, and no, I, "Fixer" I and "Outlaw <clears throat> Torn" and um, "Unforgiven 2. Like the "Load and Reload" have deep music. On yeah. Them. No, I like I like each of those records. I'm not a, I'm not opposed to those. I'm and, not a hater. And James, you know, James has something going when he lets the country twang sneak into his voice. It's cool. He he's amazing. Yeah, he's I mean, he, he's one an of the, unbelievable one of the best rhythm guitarists ever. Yes, and best hard rock male vocalist. Yeah. Like he could do a lot of different things. Like he's he's a. Me. Was he a raging alcoholic at that time? I don't that's, know. That's probably not when... <clears throat> I love seeing the old footage, though, when they're, like, pounding beers on stage. I didn't see that Metallica, obviously. I don't remember that, honestly, either. I, you know, I think that... You were just... You were you saw that show and were like, it was like changing. the path. Yes. <laughs> I, it was intense and heavy and cool in a way that no other concert I'd seen was up to that point. <laughs> and that just pushed you into metal. Metal yep. was like... Yep. Come hither, young. So then we went, you know, like Metallica's pretty mainstream, so then, you know, dove deep into the underground stuff that no one listens to, but I liked it. Um. Yeah. You know, and this is an interesting... Well, to... Now I, think, I mix pop music for a now, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but you get to... What I always do... <clears throat> do you find... You know, I've been thinking about this recently, is that I played some tracks for some Young Guns, and their ears were not ready. They did not like the aggressive nature. Like, I played them some... It was just Jersey bands, Rats and Boxes, and, like, young kids were like, they don't like, like, metal anymore. They don't like, like, aggressive... See, I don't know, though. Like, my students... Because your students are cool, dude. So my students, like... They're I, metal heads, dude. What I find is a lot of them will listen to... At least, I mean, yeah, and it's a pretty specific subset for me, you know, because these are kids who have decided to build a production career creators of sound um a lot of them i mean i give them a lot of credit for being way more multi-genre than i was at that age you know i I will give them credit for right away from age 18 being able to listen to you know kendrick and periphery and fiona apple all at the same time yeah that's true they have infinite access Mm -hmm. here's how about that do those cats think of artists in terms of records or just singles right like it depends. Like um, they know these ten songs, but it's like you don't know yeah. track seven. On. Well, I think it depends, though. I, th- I mean, I think some records are still treated as records, even in twenty twenty. Um, you know, someone who goes back and listens to like D'Angelo's Black Messiah or Kendrick's Pimp a Butterfly. Pimp a Butterfly. Yeah, like, yeah. Those that, are that's, albums. That's an album. Yes. You have to take those in as albums, and I, I do think kids recognize that. Mm. Um, you know, other stuff. You know, um, and this is neither better nor worse, just different. But I think you know more sort of mainstream pop stuff can often be treated more as 
a single by single yeah kind of listening experience well it's it is true you're they i just I think this might be my particular group of kids because they are so sweet and so nice. And then I put yeah. some metal on and they're yeah. looking at me like, are you okay? I'm like, am I okay? <laughs> yeah. This is what makes me okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my... How are your crunchy guitar and like mean drums? My students, I think, um, yeah, I mean, they like they like a lot of metal. They love Meshuggah. Um, some of them, a lot of them like old prog rock stuff. There's, you know, a bunch of Rush fans. They're all checking out Rush right now? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so you see Metallica, you get into a deeper metal phase. Are you still studying piano at this point in time? And is this when yeah, I stick composition kind of came into your life? I stick with piano until about probably 15 or 16. I play bass clarinet all the way through high school. Yep. Um, yeah. When did, because I met John as a composing student. Yeah, I thought I would... Um, composition, excuse me. You know, I... I had it in my head that I had to go to school for something traditionally respectable. Ah. Um, but you knew you were going for music. Yeah, but I, it didn't. It didn't register that there was education in commercial music. I mean, I, I knew it existed. Like I would, you know, look things up and look at Berkeley or something like that. But it didn't. It didn't click as valid, and that was that was a big mistake. Um, a smarter seventeen-year-old me would have understood that path was valid from the get-go. Mm. Did you start college maybe in 2002? Uh, 01. 01? Yeah, because two weeks in was 9-11. Two weeks in was 9-11. That's interesting. Right to purchase. Yeah, and it was totally insane. My mom freaked out, came and picked me up, and took me home for a week. <laughs> That's a good mom, though, man. No, it's a, she's a great mom, but... She was just like... She's you like, know. you're coming with me. Yeah, she was like, I don't know what's going on. Things are crazy. I'm coming to get you for a few days. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, that's cool, man. I, I mean... And your your parents are, like, native New Yorkers. Yeah. Um, born Both of them born and raised in Brooklyn. Um, we moved upstate when I was four, and they followed me back down. They're out on Long Island now. Yeah, that's that's funny. Yeah, they like it, that you know. A, just shows how much how much of a traumatic event that was. Like, all right, because it's so safe upstate. You know, we know that shit's not happening upstate. You right. Know what no, I mean? no, like, well, just no one cares. Like no one, no one. Albany is not on anyone's not, radar to that extent. Not at all. It's not even in in the discussion. So, how many bands did you have in high school then? I played with a bunch of different people. Sometimes in bands. Sometimes just like you know jamming, improv. Sometimes you know backing up a singer songwriter. Yeah. It was never like I really had like. I never had, like, my group, you know? Um, I played in the jazz band at school. Uh, did you really? Yeah. Did you play the Les Paul in the jazz band? No. I did you have, were you, like, the metal kid who would come in and rip metal solos over rhythm no. changes? No, I was I was pretty restrained, because I think I knew I was a little out of my element and beyond <laughs> my skill level. No, I mean, I'm, I, was, I was that kid. I was like, um, I have no idea what's going on right, right. now. Right. I was like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just try not to get in the way. Yeah, um, yeah. That's smart, because I was a bull in a china shop. Like, I have no idea what the hell's going on here. And, you know, like, it's a big band. You have a whole horn section. Yeah. So, like... It's exciting. You have a full rhythm section. So, like, if you're not sure what to do and you lay out, it's never bad. Like, you'll never get fired for not playing. <laughs> you knew this then? Um, no, I, th I think... Come on, No, then, honestly, then I think I was just scared. I think I, I, think I knew that I didn't... I didn't really know how to play jazz, and the only reason I had the gig is because... 
I was less out of my depth than the other kid who was doing it, you know? Yeah. Like, neither of us were great, but I was maybe just a step or two less screwed up. You were willing, you were coachable, per se. You were willing to well, see. I, mean, I knew that I could, you know, I knew what inversions were. I knew what open voicings were. I could, yeah. you know, I not that I was an authentic jazz player or ever was, because I'm not. But, you know, I knew, you know, at 16 even, like, you know, 20 different ways to play a C chord. Yeah, that, well, I didn't know that. And, and you were studying classical, too, at this point in time, Yeah, it's right? true, yeah. I took a couple of years of classical lessons from... John uh, Shred's classical. Glenn yeah. Weiser, yep. who is um, a classical guitarist. His specialty is um, guitar arrangements of a lot of traditional Celtic music. Mm -hmm. um, he actually has a bunch of uh, arrangements published in books through one of the big sheet music publishers. Cal Leonard or... Or Mel Bay or like Mel one Bay of those, yeah. yeah. Um, and that was cool. Um and he's a classical player, or does he do like the fingerstyle thing? Um, no, it's it's coming from a classical background. He's not like a pop fingerstyle player. Um, yeah, but it's just that his passion is Celtic music. Mm. And as far as I know, he's still up in Albany doing his thing. Yeah, that's cool. I like I love fingerstyle guitar. Oh, it's beautiful. It's the, it is it's so hard though. You didn't, like do you're like that took so much time. Yeah, it's an it's an unwieldy instrument. Yeah, a, a, a nylon string guitar. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's. Such a it blows my mind that people can elevate it to the level it's been elevated to. Yeah. I, I certainly couldn't. No, it's such an archaic instrument. You're like, man, we could put this through an amp and crank it up. And, and they're fragile, too. Like, a, a really top-level classical instrument, the, the guitar's top, it's, you could push a thumbtack through it. They're so thin. They're so thin, you had to project, right? Because right, like, yeah. it's, it's like already not speaker. the loudest instrument in the world. Yeah. So you need, um, <clears throat> you, know, you need to be able to set the body into motion as a resonant chamber. Mm-hmm. Classical nylon. So, where did music and uh, commercial music and technology and computers where did that kind of start to come together for you? Oh, my college friends were clearly having way more fun than I was, and uh, <laughs> also seemed to have better career prospects. So, um, you know, I hung out with them, and then it seemed fun. So, I bought an Mbox, bought a few microphones, and slowly started figuring it out. Slowly started building right angle. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. That's the that's one of the beauties of purchases that a you start to see people who are making money, and, and then you're, you're like, like you're like oh I should do that. Wait a second, yeah I think I better steer the ship a little bit that way. Yeah, right, right. Like, like I <laughs> you know I I wanted to make music, but I wanted to have a good living too. Yeah, you. It's like yeah, I can't make this. No one is going to listen to this. So, <laughs> and you know, it's there's a way to do. No, I mean, there there actually are. Like, there are. You know, I have clients who are successful um, modern composers. Um, but I guess what I'm getting at is that I wasn't good enough at it to swing it that way. Well, like, or maybe is it maybe like you didn't love it so much that yeah. you could do nothing but yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, it's not that it can't be done. It's that I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Um. So you bought a. You're also a computer wizard, didn't you? Where did you, did you build a computer at this point in time? Yeah, I mean, you were I just was like, oh, I built this computer. I was like, what? Yeah, I mean, I was, this I was, was like, building my own PCs for a while. Yeah, just because it's you know, Mac Pro was four grand, and a, a PC would be like a thousand bucks. So, yeah, this is not many people were just building computers at this era, John. I was, I was like, he built John builds a computer. Well, I mean, he builds one. It's not like I'm soldering. The <laughs> Not soldering the motherboard, you know. It's like you you order the you order the parts and you just connect them all together, and then it goes. 
I guess, dude. You're very modest and humble, but that's um, that still blows my mind. I have a little a nephew who like did it, and it still blows my mind to this. Yeah. He was like, uh, he's got this super souped up thing mm-hmm. for playing video games. Oh, and so it's got like all like the colors and going on. And, like, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's like lights in it, you know, like yeah. But he, what's interesting is that he's getting into music production. Yeah, well, it's it's a natural outgrowth, you know. I think from yeah. like a lot of the same agility from gaming, I think translates translates to music production. Well, in the sense of being able to like really, really work a MIDI controller and figure out a virtual instrument and a trigger pad and all that stuff when you're 15 or 16, then. Now it's, I mean, it's a little easier in the sense that all the information's out there. You know, there are thousands and thousands of tutorials and videos and message boards and everything else. Um, yeah. All the information is there. If you have the time, which well, this, teenagers usually have time. But the downside, though, is that the vast majority of the info that's out there is bad. Um, yes. You know, that's that warrants a whole two-hour uh, discussion at some point <laughs> onto itself. Um <laughs> No, really, like, we're, we're, we're so through the looking glass with it that in terms of, like, rote execution of a task, um, tutorials are great. Like, if you, need to, if you need to understand how to load up an EQ plugin and turn up the treble, then YouTube is great. And if you need to, an explanation on how a multiband compressor works, mm, yeah. YouTube is great. But if you need to answer, you know, those are sort of the entry-level questions, like, how do I operate my tools? Yeah. Um, and if you need to tackle more difficult questions of what should I do in the service of my art that's where there's a big disconnect because I think a lot of people assume that the tutorials apply to that also but there's a real risk that they don't Um, I'm going to sound probably more critical than I mean to this is a place to do it the overwhelming majority of information out there on the internet is not from people who are doing this work for a living. It's not from people who are consistently making great mixes or great masters. Um, Instead, it sort of, I think, parallels the notion, the modern notion, that it's your obligation to create that sort of content, that that's just sort of part of the holistic presentation of yourself as a creative professional. And there's merit to that, too. But there are a lot of instances of info that's incomplete or misleading at best and at worst just flat out wrong Mm, yeah you know a lot of people you know you could go down the first page of you know YouTube mixing tutorials and everyone's like oh look how awesome this compressor sounds and it's like yeah because you you made it eight decibels louder so of course it sounds better like you're not (laughs) you're not judging the difference in the sound you know it's it's yeah or you have people you know mastering (laughs) tutorials from people who are you know, mastering records on, like, little five-inch near-fields, and it's like, oh, I mono my bass below 100 hertz. Well, it's because you're, you're not hearing 30 hertz. Like, yeah. you know, you don't know what it sounds like in stereo. Um, if you actually listen to, like, top, top records, because like, that's a really common, that's a common thing. You, you browse producer forums, everyone's like, oh, mono the lows to make it mono-compatible. Mm. But you listen to, you know, any modern commercial artist, Halsey, Ariana Grande, anyone at the top level of pop music now, no one's mono in the low end just for the hell of it. The that Halsey song "Graveyard" has incredibly wide bass, and if you're on a system when you can hear it, it's awesome. It's awesome. It's yeah. a, it's, its own party, right? It, it swirls around you and it, and it ropes you in, and it's amazing. 
So does that come back to their tools then? Do they not? They don't have the tools, well, or maybe well, it's the knowledge to no. know that they can't hear that. Well, the, the thing is, everyone's <laughs> using mostly the same tools. Um, a lot of the top mixers now are mixing completely in software. Um, a few of them, you know, I think Manny Marroquin still mixes on a console, but Serban's entirely in the box. Chad Blake, Andrew Sheps, etc., entirely in the box. Catch, um, catch all those names, guys. <laughs> John, um, I John think, is too hip. I think Dave Pensado's in the box, but or maybe he's hybrid. I don't know for sure. Um, You're dropping names I do not know. Who do these these guys are mixing the tracks? You well, so Serban is Serban and Manny are probably the two biggest two biggest mixers pop currently. mixers right now. Um, and Serban was probably the first top level mixer to move completely into software. Probably I guess 15 years ago he probably made that move. Yeah. Um, and you know he's mixed everybody. Everybody. Um, you know, did all of Dr. Luke's productions for a long, long time. So Kesha and Katy Perry and everyone else. Um, you know, more recently, Halsey, Ariana Grande. So he's still at the top of the game. This yeah, guy. he's he's grown. He he's, doesn't. He's he's grown as like he's been able to evolve along with the pop world. Yeah. Um. You know, it's hard enough to hard enough to mix a platinum record or two ever, and incredibly hard to keep doing it for 20 years. Um, <laughs> so and, he didn't come from an EDM world, or because it's uh, to me is like, is EDM and hip-hop world kind of coming and So I don't actually know, this? but my perception is that he came from a traditional studio world where he worked at a studio as an intern and then an assistant and then probably... Using, using hardware gear, oh, yeah. using all the racks of gear. Yeah, you have to understand that most of the top mixers now are still older. You know, most of them are... 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, Andy Wallace, I think, might be 70. Um, Andy Wallace is 70? Yeah, I think so. I'm pretty sure. Okay. Um, no, I believe that, but it's like... Well, it's, I don't think it's a bad thing. It gives me hope that I won't be I won't I be useless. you will have a career. Right. Yeah. Um, so, um, but you know, I guess what I'm getting at is these guys, um, most of them are using the same tools that everyone else is. Um, but they've and what learned, are those tools? Just to... You know, um... Just for the more casual listener. So some kind of digital audio workstation software. Um, on the mixing side of things, maybe that's most often Pro Tools, but it, it could also be Logic. Yep. Um, you know, it could be... Do these guys at the top end have massive speakers like you do? John has the biggest speakers in the world, and they're the best. They're my favorite place to listen to music. Um, a lot of them to have... To hear all the low end that you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, a lot of them have, have some kind of full-range monitoring. You know, either... I mean, mine are essentially freestanding, you know, mastering mains. Um, but you could also have, like, big soffit-mounted studio speakers, you know, like what you would see at traditional studio. And, you know, you can get, um, with the advances in technology, you can get close to full-range response with things that aren't quite that big. Companies like Barefoot or Key or Dutch & Dutch have, you know, newer designs that still get you down to 30 hertz. But the idea is that, like, one... You know these guys. They're using the same a lot of the same tools, same plugins. But one, they're they're listening to each song. They're reacting to each song. You know, they're not. It's not a cookie cutter. It's not a checklist. It's not dogma. Um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I mean, they have preferences and habits. We all do. But like, they listen and they judge. Does this help elevate the music or not? Yeah. Um, does monoing the bass? You know, no no one's concerned about like, oh, is it going to translate to a club at high levels? You know, everyone's everyone's asking the much more important question of, <laughs> do my mix decisions elevate the emotional impact of the song? Mm. Um, and yeah. so that can lead you down roads that are really specific and unique from song to song, and also 
these are questions that I think a lot of a lot of people don't stop to ask themselves. A lot of people are very focused on the technical execution. You know, oh, am I doing my subtractive EQ at all the right frequencies? And that's maybe to lead us back to the your point of the the downfall of all of this information. Maybe faulty information. So the the information's <laughs> great in terms of getting kids started. Yeah. Um in terms of getting kids started with using their tools to make music, um, YouTube, etc., are amazing. Amazing, yeah. In terms of teaching people how to listen and think and work on higher level projects, it's really damaging sometimes. Mm, that is a fascinating through the looking glass. That was a beautiful literary reference you made. <laughs> Books are good. Books are great. <laughs> you know, your wife has you reading, I'm sure. Yeah, check out some books. And who is and when you were saying uh, Serban, who is the other cat? The uh, second name you were saying, Manny Marroquin. And who does he? Again, do, everybody. It would be everybody. But with, do is there any guys that where this influence of the EDM and hip hop guys? Because like like for example, we're talking about the older guys, but I remember that dude like Martin Garrix or whatever. He's like some EDM dude. Yeah. He was like seventeen, but his track like slammed. I was like, well, so this dude is seventeen. In, in EDM and hip hop. It's more likely that, you know, in EDM, it's not uncommon for the artist and the producer and the mixer to all be the same person, and it's one self-contained individual. Yes. And so that's a situation where, you know, having sort of a more traditional, sort of a more, I don't want to say paint by numbers, but a more consistent routine. Yeah. It's going to be more applicable if, you know, because you're always the artist and the producer, so your track, you have your tendencies, and then your mixing, your mixing approach is designed to match your production approach. That's like the future. You're speaking the future now. That Will, will that be every, buddy? Will that be every singer-songwriter has to be no, their own? I think for, for EDM, <clears throat> for EDM, yes. For hip-hop, sometimes. For pop music, I don't think so, no. I think that... Pop music and a lot of hip-hop, too, there's still a lot of benefit from having a real mixer whose job is mixing. Um, certain producers can mix really well, but sometimes sometimes you get too close to a project, you've been in it for too long, and you need someone's fresh ears and fresh vision to move it forward. Yeah. Uh, there's also, you know, with someone like Serban or Manny, there's the consistency of style. Like, you know it's going to rock. When you get the mix back from them, <laughs> that's or as as my one friend said, he's like when I want when I know the mix is good when I put it in on and the speakers set on fire and you're just like yes. So like this yeah, I mean, it's popping. Like, like with those guys, like you, how I feel about John's mixes. You know you're gonna get some of the best mixes you can get from those guys. You know that yes. you're you're not gonna have to go through 15 revisions with them to get it awesome. That it can, you know, you might still tweak it a bit, have some comments, but it will sound viable and releasable and energetic from the get go. Yeah. Are all these guys in L.A.? Um, the whole industry is based there? Now, I don't know. Or? I think Manny's in L.A. Uh, I think Serban, Serban is in like Virginia or something. Really? Uh, yeah, he kind of purposely shuns the spotlight, um, which I think is... Because it's such a solitary gig. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a big trend the past 20 years is that traditionally, back when mixes were often done just at the tail end of making the record. Like, you didn't always send it out to a mixer, you know? Yeah. Um, artists would attend much more often, but now 
given how things have shaped up, most mixing, even at the top levels, is happening unattended. So it is, you know, there are ways, like, you know, you can send files to people and get their feedback. Sometimes, you know, some mixers have streaming set up so the clients can hear the mix in real time and tweak it with them. Yep, I've, um, I've witnessed that. But it's more... marvel. You know, for me, I, I tried a couple things like that. It didn't fully work for me. Um, but if it works for someone else, no judgment. Yeah. Um, but I think that in any case, regardless, it's always going to be more solitary now than it would have been historically. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the great themes of the past 20 years in commercial music is the decentralization of the process. Yeah. And in some ways it's good because you don't need a million bucks to make a competitive record anymore. It's, it's extremely meritocratic now. Yes. Um, right, anybody, I mean, as evidenced by, you were, John was on the Billie Eilish chain train before, before you hit me to her. You know that? I was in your spot, and you were like, check this out. And I was like, yeah, she's so good. Whatever this is, is ridiculously awesome. Because, now, to put that into perspective, though, John, I did hear her first on your Dunleavies, on the amazing speakers yeah. in his amazing space, and I was well, like. But that's another song. This uh, is insane. And that was probably a year and a half to two years ago that you played that. Right when Barry, a friend. Uh, right when the record came out, we listened to "Bury a Friend." Yes, that was the that was the song. So, yes. Also, first of all, another song. Nothing is mono about that bass. The sub energy is wide as hell, and the way the the way the two kick drums live together is that one is dead center mono, and the other is crazy wide in stereo. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe we don't perceive. Do we perceive that in headphones? Um, if your headphones go down that far, yes. Yeah. Um. Or, or like kids, like AirPods. Everybody basically listens to music on AirPods. So, so no, you're not really getting 30 hertz out of AirPods. Mm. Um, but, but um, yeah, you played Billie Eilish, and I was immediately like, well, if John says this is cool, this is cool. But no, I thought it was cool. Well, she's but I was amazing. Like, it's you know, it's she was arty and edgy, and it's yeah, like she's this so is young, mean and so badass. like there's so much there's so much time for her to still make amazing music. She, she's got like a 40 year career in front of her. Yep. Right now, yeah. And she's already amazing. Uh, do you hear her? Um, she just released the, her James Bond theme last night. No, I didn't hear it. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. And it's like, you know, you know, we'll essentially, like, old people always like to hate on the new music. Of course. Like, the same way that my parents were like, oh, what's this death metal nonsense? But it's like, you know what? I spent so much time wishing that I knew in my bones that pop music did not have to be bright all the time, did not have to be ultra compressed all the time did not have to be auto-tuned to within an inch of its life all the time. Oh, thank God. I'm sick of that one. And she proved it. Like, yeah. she's, you know, there's little or no pitch correction on that stuff. The mixes are incredibly dark and bassy, but it doesn't feel like a problem. It just feels great. There's there's space and openness and risk-taking, and she's not, you know, they're not, they're not making production decisions based on fear. Yeah. I think fear drives, fear drives a lot of people. You know, oh, what if my record's not loud enough? What if it's not bright enough? And it's like, sure, it can't be, it can't be so quiet that it sounds like a mistake. It can't be so dark that it sounds like the tweeters are busted. Yeah. But she just made a, re you know, she made a really authentic, honest record, and and people responded to it. Yep. And I'd be like, oh, it's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. It's yeah. amazing. That's 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 awesome. Yeah, I man, man, I have a kid who played me this track, Jerry Sprunger. And T Pain is on it, and I played it for D Bone, and it's like it's like some new rapper, yeah. And I'm like, T Pain still is going. Yeah. He's having the career of like Lil John. I'm like, but 
I just how is that still a thing? How is well, this thing still a thing? Well, like you have to understand pitch correction, though, Melodyne, whatever his voice thing is. The first thing to understand is that he can sing. The autotune is a stylistic choice for effect. It's not it's not a crutch. Yeah. T-Pain as a specific example is a skilled musician and a skilled singer. Yeah. Um John's onto his second cup of tea now. I like that. Look at that. He's yeah. like, no, I will have a second cup of tea. <laughs> Life is short. Got to stay awake through it. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I think, um, and I guess like, I'm not opposed to autotune as a stylistic choice. I'm also not opposed to it when the take is right and it has the feeling that's right, but there are just a few spots that need a little touch up. Then that's, yeah. that's better than, it's better than taking a less emotional take because it's technically more correct. Um, but I guess what I mean, what I'm opposed to is the the kind of paint-by-numbers assumption that, oh, it's commercial music, so we have to auto-tune yes. every single note. Mm-hmm. If it's a stylistic choice for effect, that's valid. If it's so you can frame the best take in the right way, that's valid. Um, but I think the what bothers me is the the assumption and the habit and the dogma and the routine. I'm totally with you. That's who mixed Billy's stuff. Her um, brother, the guy. No, uh, her brother Phineas produced. He's just yeah, he's the producer guy. And I have no firsthand knowledge, but my understanding my understanding is that what he sent out to the mixer was already heavily processed, as is the norm for commercial music. When I'm mixing for clients, you know, nowhere it comes near in pretty close to where they want know, it. Nowhere near that level of commercial success for most of my work, but like even at my even at my spot in the biz, you know. The multi-tracks that I get from producers are processed because sound design is now an inherent, innate part of the production. Yeah. And there's there's no way to divorce that in commercial music. You know, you're not just writing a bass line, you're picking a bass sound. Yeah. Um, so the mixer is, I always pronounce his last name wrong, but I think Rob Kanielski. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was mastered by John Greenham. Um, to... Some heavy boys there, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Rob has been making platinum mixes for quite a few years, and John Greenham has been making great masters for quite a few years. And but I would, I would guess, you would guess, that, but yeah, I would guess that Phineas is not sending out, not sending over. He's not taking off all his processing and then saying, "Hey, mixer, recreate this." Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, he's like, this is what I this did. Is the direction that we. Would... These are these are my sounds. How do we elevate it from here? Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure I read an an article about Phineas's studio, and it's just it's not even an Apollo. It's like a, his first studio is like a Scarlet. It's like a Logic. It's like one mic, yeah. a laptop. But it's you know it's it's, it's their it's the two of them. It's their it's their ears and their minds and their vision. You know. Yeah. Um. You couldn't record a live band in that setup. No, obviously. Yeah, but yeah. for what it's for not what their thing yeah. for what they're doing, it's perfect. I yeah. would I wouldn't. That was my favorite record of last year. I wouldn't change a damn thing. Yeah, no, it's 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 kind of fascinating. The whole... Uh, <laughs> I was talking to John about this. Stuff. Yeah. And I I like... <clears throat> that stuff is all hip. It's, I'm trying to understand. I was telling you, like, I was, I'm was i really on repeat listens of Post Malone. Like, I'm trying Post to understand. He, some of his stuff, I think, is great. Did the song with some Ozzy? is so bizarre that I'm like... I think I said this to you, like, it's hard for me to differentiate, are we joking or are we serious? Is it, like, somewhere in the middle well, of this? But that's cool when it could be, 
One of my favorite things is when you can take art either way. It could be anything. Yeah, um, I'm like, I can't, I can't tell if this dude is a giant joke and he's pulling the wool over on us, yeah. or this is like the most serious piece of. Well, work. he's a serious musician for sure. He's um, definitely a musician. I mean, he definitely. You no, know, he was on not this year, but last year was on the Grammys, and the first yeah. couple minutes was first couple minutes of his performance was acoustic guitar and voice, and he's totally authentic and amazing as that too. Yeah. Um, I didn't even know. I had no idea he would do that or you know did that ever, but it was great. Um, you know the song where recently where he had Ozzy featuring it's amazing I got Ozzy sounds good on like a pop trap beat it's yeah. re- it's really cool that is funny um I think post is great uh, I also think that again it's a lot of you know someone who's aiming for emotion and impact so his vocals sometimes there are plosives low frequency thumps you know he's not following the dogma of oh we high pass the vocal at 120 hertz for this and that reason yeah you know he's not forgetting about it you know at that at that level there aren't really there aren't oversights people aren't missing out on the stuff that they meant to catch it's that there's a conscious decision being made or maybe subconscious but there's a decision being made that the vocal feels better and more intimate and more upfront and more emotional this way yeah and it's really it's really crucial to let that guide you and that's where the youtube tutorials fall apart that's where <laughs> no one everyone's got all the tools no one's remembering to listen. <laughs> oh, man. That's funny. And there was something you said earlier that I really liked. I really liked a lot is that you were saying that it's like part of being a creative professional is you feel the this you feel like you have to create content that's educational. Well, or, or supplemental. Right? Or, supplemental to you know, like, hey, man, this is how it really is going down. And you're like, why, why do you even have to do that? And right? look, like, I get it. If you're the artist, you have to connect with your fans. Yes, nonstop. There's no way around that, and I totally get it. But for me, in my role as a mixer, as a master, I'm not opposed to meeting the public. I think it's great, but I need to make sure I'm serving my artists and my producers. I need to make sure that I'm connecting to them, and I need to make sure that whatever else I do with my time is not distracting from that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me constant Instagramming would distract from that. I need to I need to listen to what's in front of me. I need to ask myself what the producer and the artist were going for. I need to try to mind read a little. Yeah. I need to be honest with myself about how I feel about the music I'm working on and whether I'm pushing it forward or not. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, those of us who are professionals on that side of the biz it's a, it's a different set of obligations compared to being an artist you know we don't we don't necessarily move our work forward by reaching out to the public constantly mm. yeah yes <laughs> and all i mean just philosophically too i i don't love the idea that everyone's opinions are potentially spoutable at any moment of any day i it's think it's nauseating quite frankly yeah i think we'd all We'd all do a little better and feel a little happier if we took a deep breath and asked ourselves, do we really need to post this before we post it? Yeah. Or or well, what's fascinating to me is, like, why does everyone feel like they need to offer, like, unsolicited advice at all turns of the... Well, I mean, I get it. Look, I've, I've been guilty of that, too. You of know, course, I've, of course. I'm not I'm absolving myself. Yeah. Making a, I'm, just, I'm making a really conscious effort to make sure that I have something to say before I speak. Yeah. You know, is what I'm about to say... 
is it going to authentically express how I feel? Mm-hmm. Or is it going to possibly authentically, truly help whoever I'm speaking to? You know, those are, those are good reasons to say something. Um, but, and again, I've been guilty of this a thousand times in the past, but I'm, I'm really trying to make sure that I'm not just posting stuff on Facebook just to hear myself talk. <laughs> well, you, you have lots to offer politically. And uh, wine, winily. Well, wine? you know, so wine. <laughs> so that, that's how, that's helping people. Like, if if you need Bordeaux recommendations, I will I will recommend you all day long, and that that is helpful. <laughs> get you get you drinking better stuff. Uh, I I agree with you. I was I can't agree with you more on this. In fact, I mean, you wrote a, you wrote a song about it. Yeah, you you wrote a song about the and we we produced it and mixed it, and it's all about the importance of disconnecting from all that and making sure that you're present in your life and in your moment. Yes. No, absolutely. And I was going to say even more like, yeah, drinking better wine actually oh, well, yeah. improves the quality of your life. Oh, well, that, well, that, that too, for sure. I mean, I'll I'll come back for another couple hours and we'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll recommend... Wine. John, I'll, the wine enthusiast. I'll recommend you, you know, Left Bank Bordeaux and Cote d'Or Burgundy. and it, it, It's so much better. You know what I wanted to talk to about too, John. Just for the technical thing, you were kept, you kept mentioning thirty hertz, which is like the lowest sound our ears. Hear. Well, I always thought it was like twenty. Well, it, so it is twenty. When you were um, referencing thirty, I'm just picking, talking about the numbers that our ears can hear, right? And then up to one twenty hertz, so, kilohertz, or something. So I, I just said thirty as sort of an arbitrary, really low number. Okay. Yeah. Um, also, I mean, actually, sorry, maybe not arbitrary, because you know what? A lot of modern music does have musical content at 30, less so at 20. 20 is sort of the lower bound at which you stop hearing it as a pitch, and you start hearing... It's slow enough where you can hear the individual pulses of the waveform. Yeah. It becomes a pulse. It becomes a rhythmic pulse. And that's not like a... That's not a hard and fast... Boundary, but it's it's more like as you move from say twenty five down to seventeen or so, yeah, you gradually transition from pitch to pulse. There's the, there's that middle ground where you sort of hear it as both at the same time. Mm. Um, and yeah, we we hear up to twenty k. Or if you haven't wrecked your ears from decades of standing next to a crash symbol, then you hear up to twenty k. Twenty kilohertz. Kilohertz, yeah, twenty thousand hertz. 20,000 hertz, which is... It's really high. That's really high. Yep. I know that I I don't hear all the way up to 20. I hear up to about 18 or so. Yeah, I but, feel like my low-end stuff is actually messed up a little bit too. Well, so... Years of sending to crash symbols. Low-end, losing your low-end is pretty rare from like, in terms of like hearing damage, noise exposure. What will happen a lot is... Your low end will vary from day to day based on any kind of internal congestion, nasal mm-hmm. congestion, um, chest congestion, anything in the passages. If I if I have even a little bit of a cold, I can't really hear low end the same way. Every everything sounds thin and harsh, so I'll turn out mixes that are too bassy and too dark. Really, yeah. like a couple weeks later, you'll hear it and be like, "I hear this totally yeah. differently." Yeah. 
Um, and yeah. so it's it's guess, awkward because like you know, I used to try to power through it, but I realized that it's better to just be honest with people. Hey, you know, I'm a little under the weather. If you can give me three, four more days just to get better, I can deliver you a better mix quicker. Yeah. And I found that people. People respect hearing that. It's, it's better than trying to do something that I know is not my best mm -hmm. and hope that it gets approved. Yeah, but that probably doesn't work with your... Because I believe some of your stories about the major label thing is like, they're some, like, okay, here's it. Can we get it back in four well, hours? Some, some, well, no, I mean, it's, it's, never, it's never that absurd. <laughs> Can we get like, this back in ten minutes? <clears throat> no, you know, they're... Sometimes labels have fast turnarounds. That's true. Yeah. Um, but one, you know, they pay a premium for it. You know, that's... Um, and two, that stuff is always coming in well on its way. Those those multi-tracks are always... There's always a rough mix that sounds really, really close. Essentially, at, at that level, people underestimate how finished songs sound how soon. Um, essentially, everything has moved one step ahead. So people's rough mixes from the production, a lot of people would hear that and be like, oh, that's mixed. Yeah, and then people hear the mixes that we send back, and a lot of people would hear and be like, "Oh, that's a finished master." And then when we when we do get the finished master, it's better still, but you know everyone is pushing forward further. And th and this is again where a lot of the YouTube wisdom falls on its face. Mm -hmm. um, oh, you know, don't use your mix bus processing. Let the mastering engineer do that. Well, but if you're mixing, you're spending a whole day on the song. If you're mastering the song, you're spending an hour. Like, why why should the person spending an hour on it get to tell the person spending a day on it what to do? <laughs> and, you know, this goes back to production also. Yeah. I'm not going to... I mean, you know, everyone's an adult, so if I need, like, a dry stem of something, I just ask the producer, and usually they're cool. Yeah. But I'm not going to insist that they take all their processing off. They've spent weeks or maybe months going back and forth on this song with the artist. They've spent so long getting to a place where they like it and the artist likes it. I am not going to try to, you know, as a mixer who's going to mix it for a day and then make a couple of revisions, I'm not going to start out by trying to derail their train so I can have more of an identifiable sonic sound, imprint yeah, yeah. on it. Like that's <laughs> my sound. It's this just John Cheddar. It's just completely inverting the priority of the different steps of the process. Yeah. Um, you know, what I think is important is you just have to own your decisions. Mm -hmm. If you're going to do stuff, make sure you like it. Yeah. And so then if you want to saturate tracks while you're producing before the mixer mixes, go for it. As long as you like it and you know that you like it. Yeah. And if you're mixing with bus processing, with compression, with EQ, sometimes even with a little bit of limiting for tone, not just for loudness, but for tone. If you know that it's good, go for it. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, the professionals that I work with, everyone expects that and is fine with that. You know, you read Reddit and people are talking about, oh, take this off before you send it to mastering. But, you know, and I take off the final limiter, but that's just level, you know? Yeah. I would never take, any, I would never take anything off that's part of the tone of the mix. Mm -hmm. um, and nor would any mastering engineer ask that of any mixer. That, that kind of dialogue is solely the provenance of amateur prosumerism. <laughs> That's a real talk right there. It's getting real. And it's getting this, real. The reason that this consensus is so misperceived is because the sheer number of semi-pros dwarfs the number of professionals, full-time pros. 
And well, that's the realest talk, yeah. And relatively few of the full-time pros have the time to weigh in on these discussions. So you have to sit around and get in the pig pen and be like, listen, guys. So if you read an internet discussion, you're likely to think that the consensus is one thing, and you might not realize that's that's very likely the amateur or semi-pro consensus. Yeah. Uh, there was an audio forum once where, you know, this guy, um, Michael Wagner, who's like, you know, big deal, heavy metal engineer, mm-hmm. um, you know, worked on Metallica's Master of Puppets. Um, you know, he answered some question about high-gain guitar sounds, and he was like, well, this is what we did, you know, this kind of EQ, et cetera. And someone else, you know, someone else was responding, well, there's no way it's that, you know. I can hear this this effect and that effect, and I know you did this and that. Or I don't even think he realized it was Michael. I think he was just like, there's no way Master of Puppets had that sound. There's no way that was the processing. And Michael wrote back and was just like, I made that record. <laughs> like... Dude, dude, I was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then, <laughs> um, what did the guy? Did he have any response? Or he's like, oh man. Uh, I don't remember honestly. That's, that's funny. But ninety nine percent of the time, you don't get that pushback from the people who do actually know. Yeah. Most of the time, they don't care. You don't care. You're like, I'm doing work. Yeah. What readers perceive as the consensus is unfortunately the amateur guessing game consensus. And look, there's no shame in being an amateur, right? No, no, no. The etymology of the word goes back to, like, one who does it for the love of something. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And we're all amateurs before we're pros, yeah. right? I was there. I made a bunch of records with a bunch of questionable decisions on them. You know, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Like, we all, we all got to learn. But, but I think that a lot of times there's this modern need, and I think exacerbated by social media... There's a need to show that we know instead of wanting to learn. Yeah. That was said very eloquently and very true. And so, you know, I try to I try to work on that too. I try to when someone says something, even if I think it's, you know, not how I would work on a record, I try to just take a deep breath and ask, might this be valid? Might I be able to learn from it? Yeah. And a lot of times the answer is yes. A lot of times there is something here, even if it's not my taste, even if it's not applicable to every project. But especially from people who are above me in the biz, I have to imagine that they've already gone through some of the learning that I'm trying to go through. Yeah. And even if, even if I disagree with them, it's it helps me and it helps my artists yeah. to take a deep breath and rather than arguing, see if I can learn. Yeah. That's uh, that's the big, that's the big thing that can help us all, right? Yeah, being open and our, okay. Just can I learn from this? Can this help me with my work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Well, what do we say from there? We keep moving. We're all moving. Everybody's moving. I like that idea too. That everybody, it does feel like you got to come. Every, everybody's game is elevated. Well, and that's. I mean, that's what we're trying to do with this work, you know, yeah. where whatever our role is on a project, we're trying to elevate what's already been done. Mm-hmm. And, and the speed of it. The speed is faster? Um, what do you mean? Like, everybody can do things so much faster. I mean, in general, yeah. yeah I mean, right? mixing mixing in software is potentially much faster than mixing on a console, except that the flip side to that is that you have infinite recall um, unlimited ability to change things and so um, 
I'm sorry, I gotta grab a cough job real quick. Oh, dude, you wanna take a pause? Yeah, let's take a pause for two pause seconds. Pause for the cause. Pause for the cause. Oh, thing. And we're back. And we're back. Boom. John was like, I gotta get a coffee drop. Cough drop, and it was like a foot away. I, I, but it was good. A bathroom break is always good for me. I'm trying to drink so much water and coffee just on the daily that... And I needed like two minutes just to like not speak so I don't start coughing. No, I appreciate that. John is getting over a cold, so yep. thank you for speaking, you know? But my low end, my low end is back today. <laughs> you heard it, you're like, oh, there it is. Well, there's no, there's no congestion anymore. Mm-hmm. So... Do you have to neti pot? It's like a singer in the ears. You're like constantly, uh... I don't neti pot, just, um... You know, I take decongestants. I drink a lot of tea. Take, you know, tea. really... It's sleep. The key is sleep, man. Sleep, tea, like really hot showers. Get some of the steam working through, you know? <clears throat> yeah. But then, but really, if I need to take a few days off, I just take a few days off. It's, it's not worth, it's not worth sending people bad mixes. Which is hard to do, man. It's hard to take time off as a freelancer. You know, that that is a real thing. I'm always like, people, Rachel's always like, well, take, take, take the day off. I'm like, well, no, I have to go and I can't actually do that. Like, so that's true, but I'm purposely trying to move my work to a way of working where I can do that. Yeah. You know, if, if my work is mostly unattended, if I target it to when I feel my best, you know, if my work's unattended, that means I can do it when I choose. Mm-hmm. And... You know, some people choose to procrastinate because of that. Yeah, that would be difficult for me. I'd be like, well, I'm never going to do this. But I try to choose it to I, try to, I try to pay attention to when I feel my best. And that might mean that if I'm up at 7.30 in the morning and I'm just ready to go and I'm energized, then I'll just go to work early. Yeah. And like, you know, you can't spring that on a client last minute. You can't be like, hey, I know we called it for 1 p.m., but I'm up. I'm up. I feel great. Let's go. Yeah. It's not going to work. <laughs> um... Or sometimes it's midnight, I can't sleep, so I come back to the studio. At midnight? Yeah. Get out of here. Well, because sometimes, sometimes I know I'm awake and my ears are good and I'm not fatigued and I know I can do good work. And if I target it to when I feel my best, the stuff, you know, my work gets done way faster and it comes out better. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a win for everybody. Yeah. Uh, that's a beautiful thing about the, the gig of your... You know, because no, really, no one really cares whether a mix takes three hours or ten hours. They just want it to be great. Yeah. Um, and so I try to, I try to do my work when I feel like the work might be great. Yeah. <clears throat> John's studio is here above Secret Famous Studios. Yep. Third floor. Third floor. Of, uh, in Astoria, which is only, this is probably only a mile from your house, right? About? Just, just over a mile, yeah. When you come at midnight, do you walk? Do you take a train? You drive? When I come at midnight, I usually drive. Yeah, that would be a driving situation. Do you know what I'm into? I mean, this is not totally fascinating for the listener, but I'm into the city bike now. I know, I know. Did I tell you this out last time? I just city yeah. biked here because there's a city bike right by me. At, Probably, oh, what, 15 minutes? 13 minutes, 13 yeah, exactly. Minutes, yeah. It's unbelievable. For and what? then You're like two and a half miles? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's about two and a half miles. Yeah. And then I'm... Because sometimes when I take my own bike, then it's a thing. And it's like, now i got to lock it up, or i got to worry about it, or i got to get it home. The city bike, I am hands-free, baby. <laughs> it's kind of great. Right. I don't you, know. I love it. You drop it. it. It's there. Drop it. It's and gone. And it's right, right around the corner, too. Yeah. If I have to take gear, moving gear around, that's always the thing for me. I mean, I'm just always slapping gear. But the point is, of my space, I mean, I base my goofy little creation station so much after John's 
ethos of uh, the Spartan studio. Notice there's only two guitars, keyboard. You know, it's like, yeah. I always love this. I, I learned this from John. It's like, it's the paradox of choice, right? The less options there are, the more we can focus on the work. You need to make decisions about your tools if they're the right tools for you. But that's different from accumulating a ton of tools just because you can. Yeah. Um, it's important to be able to... It's important to buy expensive tools and see if they help, but it's equally important to be honest with yourself if they're not helping. You know, my favorite guitars are not the most expensive ones I own. <laughs> um, Likewise. I've bought, you know, pieces of analog hardware that are, you know, $3,000, $4,000. Um, tried to work them into my workflow, but they don't. And then, you know, it's important to not use it just because you paid for it. Yeah. Um, important to be honest about that. You know, sell it if you have to, or keep it around and try it out some more, you know, if you want to. But it's not automatically helpful just because it's expensive. And more choices aren't always better. Yeah. And not to get into the nitty-gritty of technical speak, but you kind of talked about this earlier, but do you have any outboard gear that you use, or do you, are you fully, quote-unquote, um, in the box, which to the non-musician, that means that he only uses a computer... Yeah, so I do have a few pieces of hardware. Yeah, they um, I usually use them on the master bus, so on the entire song. Um, I'd say maybe a third of the time I'm completely in software. Yeah, a third. Two-thirds of the time I have one or several of these few pieces on the master bus. Mm -hmm. To warm it up, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, sometimes there are sounds that I still... You know, again, though, it's important to, It's important not to always use it. I'm not using it just because it's a $9,000 EQ. Mm -hmm. I use it when it helps. Mm -hmm. And if it's not helping, if the sound of it, you know, it's it's a beautiful sounding EQ, uh, the Soma. But it's, you know, it's it's wide and open and not very colored at all for a tube EQ. Um, you know, wide and open and sometimes a little bit soft. Um <clears throat> And a lot of times that is just the ticket. Just uh, the ticket for the whole track. Any track. Pop track, rock track. Yeah, yeah. Hip-hop um, track. Yeah, because it's not really a reaction to genre so much as it's a reaction to the specific sound that it's on. Yeah. Um, but it's important to be honest with myself when it's making things too soft. And so in that case, I'll try to go back just to digital and see how that rolls. Um, you know, I have the Neve Master Bus Compressor. And... A lot of times I don't even use it for compression. It's just kind of the tone of the transformers in the box, and you can purposely overdrive the transformers, and sometimes a little bit of that is cool. Yeah. Um, that is super subtle. <coughs> super subtle audio. Yep. But it's important, like, you know, sometimes that can... It can seem to tame the sub a little bit. Sometimes that can translate to, like, a little less 40 hertz and a little more 100 hertz. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's not right. And so, yeah, that's another piece that's four grand, but it's about being authentic to what you're hearing in the moment. And if it's not right, then it's cool to go back to software and just do it in software. Yeah. So it's it's still, you're not, you're it's dependent on the track. You're not married to one style or... No, I mean, I have, I have my starting points, you know, I have my preferences, we all do, but listening and reacting and trusting your feeling rather than trusting your technical analysis is... A crucial step of the process, yeah. yeah. 
What about mics? Is that a cheap, cheap mics? Are you getting more and more cheap mics? Is that a real thing? So, I mean, kind of, you, you said we check out these, but I mean, to me, I still just, I always hear a guitar in an SM57. I, everybody yeah. puts a fancy mic on, I'm like, well, I guess. I mean, so for me, like, you know, the 57 is not my first choice, but it's fine. Um, I think the SM7, you know, it's transformerless. It sounds a little more open. Uh, Bayer 201. You know, those are probably the two dynamic mics I reach for first on a guitar amp. Yeah. But, like, I guess I'm so used to... I'm so used to shaping things significantly in the mix that I'm usually pretty agnostic on the miking. If I was doing more jazz or more chamber music, then... It's a big... It's a much more documentary kind of process, you know. It's much more important to dial in that sound. But I'm used to music that is purposely and aggressively sonically shaped throughout the production of the mix. And so, I'm usually pretty agnostic. I will say that even after all these years, the U87 into the API into the purple is still... The most classic that's chain. A, that's a tracking chain that works for me. Yeah. I like that sound. I like the I like the way it saturates. I like the harmonics. I like the little bit of mid-range push without crossing into harshness. Um, on a good day, that... I mean, that's, that's my starting point, sure, and none of those pieces are cheap. <laughs> yes. But it, but if it's not working, then it's not working, and we'll try something else. Yeah. Mm. Um, and everyone everyone just has to be present enough to be listening and make an artistic call if it's working or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> John said something last week. Rachel and I were quoting it this week. You're like, in a lot of instances, being reserved is good. But this is not that case. Like, <laughs> oh, were we talking about your vocal delivery? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The way you said here, like in most instances in life, it's good to be a little. Uh, the, but this is not that case. He well, said it so eloquently. I was like, that was that cracked us both up. Well, because your song is funny. Yeah. <laughs> and it's meant to be this. This song is meant to be this over the top funny totally thing over the top. about a guy who comes and like pulls you out of deep freeze by some by by feeding you beer. By feeding us beer. It's. Yeah. Like, he, he travels through space and time to give you beer. Yeah. <laughs> to pull you out of, like, you know, Han Solo kind of, like, yeah. cryo-freeze. Cryo-freeze, exactly, yeah. So, like, th- there's there's no way that, like, like subtlety and reservation is not part of that vibe. No, it's no. not at all. No, you gotta, you gotta own that and go for it. Just sometimes, exactly, as you said, sometimes, sometimes this is the way and... Other times it's not, yeah. So yeah. John is clearly demonstrating that he's open to all these different... Different ways. I can't even imagine. In the mix, I mean, there's a, there's an infinite number of choices that you mm-hmm. can make now. Yep. Literally infinite. Like, And that's important to be aware of because there's a real risk of losing your objectivity and running in circles making things different rather than better. Yeah. So I try to I try to I try to work fast. I try to trust my instinct as to what feels right. Mm-hmm. Um, I very rarely listen to things in solo because one, there are some problems that you won't hear when you hear things in solo. That is interesting to say. You won't hear how things conflict with each other when you solo because you, you, you can't. You always have to hear it in the track. Yeah, that's so true. When people are like, "What do you think of this sound?" I'm like, mm-hmm. "Well, we have to hear it in the right damn song." Like, what do you mean? I can't tell now. Like. All I can say when I'm hearing a soloed sound, I mean, there's some sounds that I can rule out, like I know I won't like it, 
But the most positive endorsement I can give to a soloed sound is, well, potentially that could be cool. Yeah. We still have to hear it in context and make it fit in context. And um, what was I going to say? I just lost my train of thought. The I don't I don't listen to things. You don't that, listen oh, to so, things in solo. So because because you're not going to hear some problems that you will hear in context. But also, you'll hear some problems that aren't problems. You will be hyper-focused on every little resonance of a soloed sound. You'll be much more likely to be worried about, you know, all these little bands of subtractive EQ notches. And I think one thing that a lot of people aren't aware of is that it's very possible to solve the problem that you've noticed while still moving backwards in terms of overall vibe and impact. Of the track, yeah, of the overall track of and you can have you can have very purposeful specific subtractive EQ and also end up with a mix that sounds plasticky and lifeless and digital and cold. Yeah. Um and so That's my solution is to insofar as possible listen to the whole track. I usually like when I'm mixing, I usually take the loud section of the song and just put it on loop and get to work. Yeah, and I'll spend the first hour, hour and a half just on the second or third chorus. Interesting. You and start it, from the biggest, biggest yep. place of the song. I stole that from Andy Wallace, by the way. I read that in an Andy Wallace interview. Yeah. Um, and as soon as I started doing it, it made more sense because you know, with digital, we have a ceiling, right? Things can only get so loud until they clip. Yep. But you have essentially infinite room to go softer. So if the loud section is dialed in and and gain staged and hitting everything the way you want, it's usually there's usually a clear path forward making the softer sections fit around it. That is brilliant, John. Uh, did you know that I, you know, I, I'm a geeky John Grisham fan? Sure, yeah, yeah. Time he, to Kill was great. He writes the last scene first, which is exactly what you just said. He said, do you know why? I have yep. to know where I'm going or else all these writers, young writers are sitting around yep. years and years writing and they never can end a novel. Right. He's like, I have to know exactly the point mm -hmm. to I'm going to. And this is Andy Walls, a.k.a. John Jenner. Yes, that's fascinating. I never even, I would have never even thought of that. Back when I was like a real, you know, serious guitarist. Yeah, and <clears throat> when you I, still are. When I was learning difficult music, I would start at the end and work my way back. Like the end of a, of what's a particular piece? Um, like, you know, I was, when I was teen, I was playing like Paganini violin caprices on guitar. Yeah. So, you know, um... With really technical, tough music, I'd start at the end and work my way backwards, so whatever the newest material was, I would hit it first on each run-through. And as I went through the piece, I would gradually get to material that I'd played through more times and could play better. Yeah, that's always the case. It's what we always joke learning pop tunes. It's like, it's always the bridge, because you hit it. I can never remember the bridge. I know right. the first, I know the chorus. You play the bridge a right. quarter less times. Right. <laughs> and so for me, it's if I start the mix at second, the second or third chorus, things fall into place. You know where you're going. You I, have a destination. I know where I'm going. Yeah, exactly. And I don't necessarily mean a destination chronologically over time. I mean in terms of impact. The chorus is usually going to hit the hardest. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. That's a, that's a fascinating thing. I had two things to say, and then I got so into that that I forgot what I was actually going to say to you right now. So That's fair. Well, <laughs> the mix, John Grisham, Rage... Uh, what about your guitar playing? Oh, I was going to say, too, you, uh, you're a drummer now. You're working on your drumming. I, you're probably like, all right, Paul, we don't have to. It'd be more accurate to say that I sit down at the kit and hit the drums. 
Do I, you approach the drums in the same way you approach all your guitar study, or or you just like banging around on the drums? But I enjoy that you're no, like challenging I'm, your brain, your musical brain, to learn a new thing. And he's like, yeah, I practice acoustic drums now. I'm, like, I'm trying to cool. learn for sure. I'm not just I'm, I'm not just trying to flail around. You know, I'll I'll work with a click track. I'll study different songs. Um, I don't think I will ever be a drummer, drummer, but I I want to get to a point where if there is an idea that's technically simple but very specific. I can execute it on a project I'm working on. Yeah. Um, you know, and that could be as simple as making sure I can tune a rack tom exactly how I want. Oh, yeah. Or... Tuning toms is... Or even just, you know, the sort of... Sort of the accent and sticking difference between single stroke work and paradiddles and other rudiments, you know, that... I'm never going to blaze around the kit. <laughs> um, but I want to... I mean, to me, but you enjoy it. It's something you enjoy learning and well, checking to me, out. That's the crux of modern commercial music. Ideas it's that drums. are well, no ideas. Sorry, ideas that are often technically fairly simple to execute, but are super specific in their thought process and their creation. Mm -hmm. The idea that even li like really little things do matter, and displacing displacing one hi hat accent by a sixteenth note can matter. Um. That's deep. That's a heavy concept. And Very true. I want to, you know, I'll never be technical enough to play Meshuggah <laughs> songs on drums, but in commercial music, the technique is not the limiting factor so much as the thinking and the creating. Yeah. I was going <laughs> to... I was going to say you're uh, the listening in solo, though. When I am watching John work, you do... So much time is put into the drums. Well, because the drums, I mean, a few things. One, John to, will be zoning out. John's like still checking out the drums. You're like, I will solo things sometimes. Right? It's I solo all about the drums. How do we get the drums cool? Drums, drums, drums. So I do solo things on occasion. Uh, when I've already noticed an issue, when I've noticed an issue in context, but I can home in on it more precisely if I solo for a few seconds. Yeah. And that's different from soloing something and then deciding what issues I notice in solo. When I solo something, it's because I've already heard a problem in the context of the whole mix, and I just need to get very precise about it. Yeah. Uh, but drums are important for two reasons. One, they will most readily fill the extremes of the frequency range, the lowest lows and the, the highest highs. The lowest and the highs, yeah. That's yeah, um, very true. You know, the kick is is often the lowest frequ low frequency in the mix. Um, snare drums and cymbals can go all the way up toward 20K, the yeah. highest highs. Um and if you think about what listeners most readily connect to, it's almost always the message of the song, the lead vocal. Lead vocal, number one. And yeah. the beat and the groove. And the groove, yeah. And, you know, if I think about what's most important to make this music translate to people who are going to be listening on, you know, cheaper systems in less than ideal rooms, et cetera, et cetera, I need to make sure those two aspects of it translate to all circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's inter it's 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 an interesting thing. Now, how often are you in like modern commercial music though? How often are we even confronted with acoustic drums anymore? Well, a lot of times, it depends. I mean, a lot of times there will be a loop, you know, that might have been a live player chopped up, looped, sampled, you know, and treated as a layer. Oh uh, yeah, that's, that's actually that's fairly common. Pretty common right now. Yeah. yeah. Like Tame and Pollock kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, or like if you go back a few years, you know, someone like Colby Calais would have live drums in a modern pop context. Um, yep. 
my buddy Steve played played live drums on a Shakira track a few years back. Um, you know, these things, these situations do still happen for yeah. sure. Um, Kendrick, Kendrick had live drums all over Pimp a Butterfly. D'Angelo. Yep. There's, so there are, there are, I mean, and those aren't like pop pop, you know, but even in like pop pop, like, you know, Joe Jonas formed DNC. It has live drums on there? That's a band. There's a drummer. There's, There's a bassist. A yeah. Now it's a lot of processing. It's a lot of, you know, turning it into, you know, shifting it toward a pop focus, but there are, there are people playing those parts. Yeah. It's cause it's. Well, I was thinking about this recently, but it is it is so beautiful, an acoustic kit, the whole elements of yeah. it working and toning together and being this beautiful thing that has mm-hmm. almost, it's almost been taken away. Well, but now no. it's like kick, snare, kick, snare. Yeah, but but not always. There are still moments where the acoustic kit comes in. Um, yeah, where, it's like, where is the whole like interaction of like a nice tuned floor tom interacting with the cymbal? You know, I think mean, it's a beautiful thing. Sometimes it still happens. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's like... You're doing it. You go. You go home and practice it. You're like, oh, let me let me work on my acoustic kit. It's I've hard been listening to 808s all day. <laughs> it's hard, you know. I sometimes I'll play a part really well for 32 bars, and then the next repetition it just collapses for no good reason. <laughs> like what happened? Yep. Working on the hardest parts first. That's fascinating. The lead vocal, and it's all about the lead vocal. That's the... And the groove, though. The groove is almost up there. It's almost as important as the lead vocal in a lot of music. Yeah. Yeah, be- I, f- I always say it's about the feeling or people feeling it, but it is... Some people hear music... But, and, but when, when, you talk about, when you talk about feeling, though, feeling is the message of the song and how the groove makes you move or not. Makes you feel, yeah. Yeah. This overall kind of feeling, and that comes down to the groove number two. Like yeah, e- yeah, sure. either you're either you're gonna dance along to it, or you're gonna sing along to it, or both. Yep. And if you're not doing either of those things, then is the song really connecting with the listener? I don't know. I mean, in certain kinds of music, sure. Like I think there, there's, you know. But even even in Tool, like you're not dancing to Tool, but the lyrics are of critical importance, and the groove is critically important. Danny Carey is a beast of a player. Beast of a player. Amazing. Um, you know, m- when I went to a Meshuggah concert, I mean, it's it's extreme metal, but it almost it almost feels like a rave in the sense that you can lose yourself in the it's it, there's it's so fast and there's so many notes, but you can lose yourself in the meditative aspect of it too. You totally can. It overtakes you. So much information coming after. Well, I mean, I'm I'm a I'm and, a convert. I have my Meshuggah shirt on yeah. today. Yeah. And you can almost you know close your eyes and forget that there are three thousand other people at the show. Yeah, you're just grooving it in. Yeah. John, have we? I wanted to talk about this earlier. Have talk about hurts and stuff. Have we reached the extreme end of where metal can go? Is is Meshuggah the end, or is there another new level of metal? So essentially, that will come? when you get down to the low F sharp, that's it. Um, you're at you know give or take. Let me let me think real quick here. When you get down to the low F sharp, you're at about. 25, 24 hertz. Mm-hmm. Below that, you, you can't... You this can't, is what, what you were talking about, like where pitch meets yeah. rhythm. Like, if you go down the any next further, level of metal? <laughs> if you go down a full octave down to the extra low E, yeah. that's that almost stops being pitch. That's about 20 hertz, 21 hertz. Is that where we're going to go next? I don't, I don't think it's going to... Especially with distortion, the problem is that you... 
when you go too low, you actually get less of that fundamental and more of the overtones. Yeah. And it almost it almost can sound like it's an octave up from where it is. So we've reached the end of metal in our lifetime. Well, I mean, in terms of lowering pitches, yes. Um, and just screaming. I mean, I'm, musically it'll evolve, but like... I don't. I don't think it'll go lower than F sharp. You realize, like most of the really professional, genty bands that tune way down, most of them have reached a consensus on down to F sharp rather than F or to E. Yeah, F sharp is the F sharp is the usual the usual arrival point there. On the lowest string. Yeah. On, yeah. A, on like an eight string. Yeah. And but do you these kind of elements of extreme metal from twenty years ago? They are in pop music now. Like they affect. Well, in some ways, in it's some easier. Ways like, it's easier to do that stuff in pop music to play with the extreme, extreme lows because, one, it's usually not constant the way a distorted guitar is. Metal metal is oh, hard. Metal is like constant barrage of right. these notes. That's right, yeah. Metal is super, super tough to mix because you're dealing with a genre that has the fidelity expectations of pop, mm -hmm. but there's just this constant wall of sound. <laughs> it's just constant. At the same time. Yeah, yeah. So with pop, you know... Again, it's still really demanding work, um, but the saving grace is that the saving grace is that other than the kick and the bass, there usually are not that many super low frequency tracks to contend with. Yeah. Um, and extreme kick, like so much kick. It's it's yeah. I mean, we've we're getting to a point. I mean, I like it. There's a ton of sub energy now in modern pop. Um, I find I think the last few years are some of the best few years for recorded music in a long time. Yeah. I think the overall frequency contour is way more musical, way nicer to listen to compared to say 15 years ago. Yeah. 15 years ago we were sort of at the height of, you know, over-limiting, over-compression, loudness war. As long as it was loud, no one cared if it sounded good. And now people still want it pretty loud, but everyone's also focused on whether it sounds good and artists and producers are very sensitive to over-limiting and over-mastering. And 15 years ago, it's kind of really this dawn of this fully digital yeah. thing, right? Right? We're all like, whoa, what is this? And, and now it's, it's like, okay, back to music. Yeah. It's weird to think of 05 as being old, you know, because it makes me feel really old. Um, but but it is. like the, It definitely is. The trends, I mean, again, and holding up Billie Eilish as sort of being emblematic of the trends... There's so much bass and there's so much space, and she's so not worried bass. about having so the loudest bass. master so ever. It's it's easily loud enough to be competitive, but there's this severe focus on musicality. Yes. <laughs> um, that, and to where like you know, to where it's not just about the first listen, to where it 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 grabs you in and pulls you in for the twentieth listen also. Yeah, that's funny. I heard the Killers last night. I think musically, it's they're great, but it's—is it what you're talking about? Where it's like this is just max. This is dimed to be yeah, loud to be loud. But yeah. that's different, like because that's that's that kind of music, you know, like that that works for what they are. Um, the same way that I think it, the Foo Fighters records work for who the Foo Fighters are. You know, I think the issue again is more the dogma, the the sort of that era when everything was set to stun, regardless, you know. <laughs> Um, and it's, you know, like with the Killers, it's compressed and it's forward and well, present. That music's awesome. I mean, it's just timeless, but it's, but it's from that era. It's purposeful, like, yeah. though, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's, it was... it's, I have no doubt that's 
an intentional production decision, and it translates to me as authentic to the music. Yeah. So that, I, I love those records. What's an example then maybe of what you're talking about, where everything's set to stun to stun? Like, I mean, I don't want to... five. I mean, like, I don't want to trash anyone, like, too no, hard, but, too specifically, but, like, the classic examples. I love the Chili Peppers, but Californication was mastered super, super hot to the detriment of the music, I think. Interesting. Uh, but Californication, isn't that from the 90s? Californication, I don't remember. I thought it was early 2000s. Oh, you're right. You're right. Um, it's early 2000s. You know, Metallica's uh, Saint Anger and Death Magnetic. Um, Death Magnetic is a kind of interesting record, though. It's so aggressively limited, though. Mm. and. You know, to me, like I secretly like, kind of like that record. That's cool. Well, but so musically, it's cool. Um, sonically, you're saying. Sonically, it's just it's limited it, to. There comes a point where more loudness and more density equates to more heaviness, heaviness up to a certain point. But then, then you start to notice the processing instead of feeling the music. Mm, yeah, um, that's probably true. Yeah, and I mean, and that's really. That's really my question: Is does, does the processing mesh and meld into the music, or do I do I start to notice the processing independent of the music? Can you turn that part of your your producer engineer ear off? No, no, uh, never. For, right? For, I mean, well, there are a lot of bad recordings, like lo-fi bedroom recordings that I love. I can turn it off in that sense, but if if someone's going for the big budget hi-fi production then for me to love it, all the elements have to line up. Yeah. Um, writing, recording, producing, mixing, every everything has to align. Yeah. It's so many elements. Yeah. So many pieces that have to come together. What are some lo-fi stuff that you love? That's just an interesting I mean, I love the early Bon Iver stuff. Um, that's super dynamic and super unconventional, but it's brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, is, that the, is he the dude? He just did it. He just, like, records himself with an acoustic guitar? Um, well, it's much more than an acoustic guitar. There's a ton of... There's other stuff. Yeah, a ton of processing and vocoding and signal chain stuff. Um, I love, um, you know, Back to Rage, Evil Empire. It's not, like, lo-fi, lo-fi, but it's it's not nearly as slick as either their first or third record. It's definitely not as slick. But it, it definitely is my favorite. Uh, yep. I don't know. I put that record on like right. smiling. It's like, exactly. I don't know what I love this. <laughs> it's it's less it's so slick and it's le it's less conventional than their others, but it hits me harder. Yeah, definitely does. Um, you know, I thought Kendrick's uh, Untitled Unmastered. Again, it's not lo-fi by any stretch, but it's not as it's not as purposely slick as say Damn was. Yeah. But I love those Untitled Unmastered songs. Uh, D'Angelo's Black Messiah has a lot of quirky, unconventional moments. Um, you love that record, huh? I That's do. the second time you dropped it. It's so good. I was good. listening to Voodoo uh, a couple days ago. Yeah. I gotta get back into... Black Messiah was so much for me to... I, I, I was like, this is a lot... I mean, it's like so thick. I was like... It, it's so thick. It's musically and conceptually, there's a ton to think about. Yeah. But I love it. Who is the young guy, well, he looks young, purchased Darling... Oh my God! I can't. He did. Rachel likes his stuff. He records himself. <laughs> I can't think of his name. I don't ever really check out his stuff, but I feel like he's a lo-fi guy. He's not a. He didn't go to purchase. He's like a Bon Iver era. When we're talking about, I mean, look, John's looking at me like. What I mean, that could be talking? any. No, I'm I sorry. <laughs> I, I had no idea. Oh my God! It's gonna come to me later. It's killing me now. Anyway. John, here we go. Two questions for you. Number one. Yep. Can I, is there a track that you've worked on that I can play people out with out of this? 
beautiful interview. Yeah, I think yeah, um, I'm putting you on the spot here. I could have emailed you beforehand, but is there something, something that won't get us copyright rights? Even though, as I always say, I like to get sued. So, um, but is there some piece of music that we can play them out from this with that you can, in terms of like putting it onto your podcast? Yeah, I'd want to check with an artist before I said yes. Um, the obvious example is one of yours because you could say yes. Yeah, no, um, I was thinking maybe I could play people in with Tori. Sure, yeah, song yeah. premiere. Yeah, that works. Yeah. Um, other than that, you know, there's a lot of things that could work, but I'd want I'd want to check with the artist first. Check with them. Let's talk about Tori then. Yeah. Well, there's nothing to talk about now. Talk about it. Your your Tori tribute song. It's not done yet. It's not done yet, but I well, thought it, it might be I, done. It's pretty close to being done. I think it demonstrates. It needs like a lot of things that you can. That we have to go back to it for the last hour that we always go back to everything for. Yeah. And then it's done. That track is a fierce. Fierce work of John Jetterness. <laughs> it's like an animal. It's like a monster. I play it for people and they're like, this is like a giant. This is like a monster. Yeah. And the third chorus is the biggest part of that. Mm -hmm. Think of that. Did you start in that? I did. John mixed it? I did. That track is a monster. Well, I'll play them out with it since we're here. We're talking about it. Um, what is there to say? It's piano. It is piano, but it's a lot of other stuff too. You played the electric guitar in the second verse. I don't think so. The heavy, like mashuga, like detail. That's thing. you, yeah. No, that's you. It might be both of us. That uh, you did. There's parts of there, like the off time. <laughs> I did like the high ostinato thing, like the repeated note through the ton of delay. In the choruses, I think so. Verse two, I think, is you. I don't know, John. I think that's you. No, you were playing, and I was dialing in the uh, the Engel Fireball model on the. Uh, oh, you remember uh, it on the Thu plugin, yeah. <laughs> well, man, the guitar sound world is amazing. Yeah, the mo modeling's gotten real good. We did the whole track uh, beginning to end of John's studio. It's Andy Martinick on drums, Seth on check on bass. I play keys. We tracked it. Then John makes everything. I I don't like I. It's just a mystery to me how you can take things and make them sound incredibly well. Edited the drums to make them magical. Edited mm. the bass, edited the guitar, and then we had the monster human Emily Danger sing female vocals. She on was the part. real good. She's yeah. unbelievable, man. Real good. Um, but you know, a lot of it—it's just what I've been saying. You know, try to—I try to understand where you're coming from with the song. Yep. I try to do what I think will elevate it in that direction, and then you know, you let me know if something's going on the wrong track, and then we change it. And then in the outro, the the. The saturation or the distortion oh, yeah. that you add, and then if you listen, when you listen to it, it'll be like, it gets crazy, 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 and it's like you're only changing one thing, really. Yeah, I mean a couple knobs on one thing. Couple but yeah. knobs on one thing, and it's just like. Yeah, it's good though. That's I, kind of my favorite part of the track, actually. I, I like that moment. <laughs> it's just yeah. an outro, but it's like, it's awesome. I like that moment a lot. Yeah. Well, check it out. Thank you, John. We'll play that one out. Um, and then, and then here's one of my. We'll wrap this up like. What's the future for John? Future What's the for future John? for Right Angle Productions? Um, hopefully, Recording. more work. Um, there may come a point where the industry sort of <laughs> sends enough work where I have to choose between the mixing focus and the mastering focus. It's a little unusual to be doing both, um, and I have to be conscious of... Which one would you like? Which one would you prefer? I don't know. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I like both. I have to be conscious of making sure that I think about each one in the way that's appropriate for the task. 
That's interesting. Um, yeah. That's a very deep question. Yeah. Sometimes I have to check myself, and I wonder. I wonder if pursuing both is limiting my growth at one or the other. Hmm. Um, but I do feel like my work is getting better in in both roles, and the amount of work coming in is getting better with both roles. So I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it going with both until I have to choose. Yeah. Um, you know, down the road, I would love to have the budget to get Thomas from Northward to build my next room. Um, I think he is in a league of his own when it comes to studio design. Well, you're definitely here for 10 years, right? So yeah, you're saying... but I mean, you know... Maybe you, in the future... Well, but is, you never know. It's like, you either have him, like, you know, gut and rebuild this room or sublet this room out to someone. And, you know, if there's money, I would love to have him on board yeah. for, like, a top-to-bottom, soup-to-nuts plan and build. Would your space be in Queens, close to your home, or would you like to be in the woods or in Virginia? Is I don't know. I would love... In a perfect world, I would have a spot in New York, and I would have a little cottage somewhere in France. Yeah. 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 Would you work in France, or would that just be to chill? Oh, I would love to. If I could if I could set that up where all the work was remote, <laughs> and I could split my year between, you know, New York and... I mean, I should, I should go to France and see if I love it before I commit to well, this. You know, I haven't been yet, but in May. In May. In May, you I will You will be go. there, and you will know. I will know, yep. You're going to love it. Like, like a little, you know, a little co- a little cottage in wine country, like with just kind of built out to have a mix room. That would be amazing. Sounds right? incredible, yeah. And this person you just said, Tom from Northport, um, Thomas Joanjean, Joanjean. I don't really know how to pronounce Is it. Is he the the ultimate uh, designer of space? Um, he's been doing great the past couple of years. He did all the new rooms for Sterling Sounds new spaces. Um, he did the mastering suite at the bunker in Williamsburg. Oh wow. Uh, He's done a bunch of other spaces, too, and it's just... Every time you're in those spaces, you're like, oh, my gosh. I mean, and the results speak for themselves. Like, everything... When my mixes go to Sterling for mastering and they come back, it's it's great. It's exactly what I want. Yeah, wow. Do they... Are they also... uh, What about the the speakers? My speakers? Yeah, I mean, does that... I love well, them. Those are always. That's it. That's a forever. No, or I mean, do you nothing's forever. You I wanna. To... I wanna try. I wanna try other things. Um, because John has these speakers are unbelievable, and you have another set of them. I do have two sets. Um, two sets. But I want to know, like Thomas, like... Thomas's designs <laughs> use. You know, they all use um, soffit mounted ATCs. So I'd be curious to know. You know, I'd be curious to really spend time with those and get a feel for those. And see are those if... as huge as yours? Or are you saying they're mounted? They're like they are wider, and they are soffited in the in the front walls. That's the word you're saying. They're in the wall, so it resonates the whole room, kind of? Well, no, actually, so it doesn't resonate the whole room. Ah. Um, so that... I don't want to get too technical, but when a speaker's in a room, there's a risk of low-frequency sound from the back bouncing off the wall and combining with the direct sound. Yeah, We call this um, SBIR, Speaker Boundary Interference Reflection or Response. Mm-hmm. And so you get more bass response overall and also more even bass response, theoretically, if you're soffited and you do it precisely. Wow. That's fascinating. That's a great dream, and you'll achieve that dream. Yeah, I mean, so that I, I'd love a Northward room. I would love to keep doing my thing. Would I'd the love Northward to... room be very specifically for mastering? or there, you, I mean, you could, could do, mix in it. Like, you can do both in each, really. Well, but at the level maybe you're talking... I wouldn't want to master. So I wouldn't want to master in the average mix room. I think the there are way too many mix rooms out there that are disastrous. Yeah. But a really dialed in, purpose built room that's a great listening space is a great listening space, and you can mix in it or you can master in it. Yeah. 
Yeah, you could do just yeah. super amazing yeah. audio, yeah. hi-fi, nirvana, just... So yeah, in perfect world, I keep working. My clients grow and succeed. I meet new clients who are also growing and succeeding, and we all keep doing our thing. John, you're the man. Thank you for taking the time. I do this great. You're a real, you're truly secret famous. I mean, I've been saying it for about a thousand years now. I'm like, John is the best. Oh, Lord. (laughs) No, I think I, I would say it. I was like, John is literally the best. He can do literally anything. You're an audio just shredder, ninja, like mix ninja. You could do anything, any project that anybody is working on. John can help you out in any way. You should check him out. Audio questions abound. Yep. Yeah, I mean, track me down. Love to talk shop. Love to talk wine. Track him down. It's, I called you <laughs> shop and wine. I said, I'm confusing it in my brain. Is it technically productions or recording? Right angle Recording? Well, or so productions. I had Right Angle Recording um, as an LLC in my name for a long time. I right par- Angle Recording. I partnered up with my studio partner Rob Cleveland. You know Rob. Mm-hmm. Partnered up with Rob to have this new space, and our joint company is Right Angle Productions. So Right Angle Productions handles the space. Um, it handles some of the other sort of contracting, staffing work we do when we send other sound people on other gigs. Um, and that's that's the company that's active now with him. I just have I still have the right angle recording company name. Yes. I just kind of keep that in the you know in the back pocket. Um, not really not really doing business through that name now. So to find you on the so to however people find best people. ways to find me. Um, personal website jonathanjetter.com. Jonathanjetter.com. Great. Studio website rightangleproduction.com. Singular. RightAngleProduction.com. Yep. We're trying to buy Right Angle Productions, and the owner is not reachable. <laughs> um, That's... But, you know... Very modern problem, Right Angle Production. Those websites, or Twitter, or Instagram. And probably this whole business, right? I'm So much it's like... People just reach out to me and be like, hey, can I get John's number? That works, right? too. It's I so mean, much like that. Like, hey, most of the work... mix this? I'm always like, John... <laughs> Most of the work is word of mouth. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, because people, you have to build trust. And the only ways to build trust are to, one, have some records with enough success, enough streams, enough critical recognition where that can vouch for you to whomever's seeking you out. Or have someone who the artist trusts vouch for you. Like those are the, we're talking about sums of money that are really significant to an independent musician. Yeah. If the mixes don't go well, they don't really have the money to just go get it mixed again by someone else. And so there there needs to be pre-existing trust in one of those two ways, yeah. Thank you, John. Thank you. You are a guru, a master. Thank you for taking time. And I, I, I assure you that people will listen to this and then come to me and maybe you, you know, and be like, wow, I learned so much from John talking about audio and the way the process and the way to make music. So I hope seriously. so. I, that would uh, that's that's the goal. Thank you so much, John. Word. Thank you. Boom. 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 Fricky, fricky. Boom. 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 Boom.
it's not you Stealing bananas from the crew Sex at dawn, mow my lawn Let's make this a pile on Hit the hutch, pass the dutch Once we're loose, we can touch Wine for days, purple haze I'll show up when it pays you enjoyed that please uh thank you for listening john please check him out he's the man um and then so i recorded the intro then i went upstairs and i just hung out with john for a second 
and he was like, I 20, Brunobo, I'm so psyched right now. Anyway, Brunobo is the, his favorite song by friends of 2019. So that was Brunobo, uh, written by me, Paul Emerys on drums and the second rap. And that, that song was actually almost originally, he sent me a rap and then I turned his rap into a beat in the guitar parts and made that hook Brunobo because a shout out to our dearest friend, Jeff Tui. And Jason Wexler on bass and keys, and John did basically everything else. So it's cool. He was like, put that track in. So you did not hear Waves. That was Bronobo. The name of that band is called Kicknut. The name of the intro band that I was talking about, that was, we call ourselves Mom, like Martinick, Andercheck, Madison, Mom. And that was Tori. Thanks for listening to Tori. Thanks for listening to Bronobo. Thanks for listening to Jonathan Jetter, John Jetter, a.k.a. Right Angle Productions, a.k.a. Right Angle Recording. If you need any mixing work, please check him out. And I hope you have the greatest day possible. Hydrate, drink water. That's what the Josh, the yoga, if you might remember two hours ago when I was talking about Josh. Hydrate, hydrate. Namaste. Anyway, y'all have a great day. Big, big, big love. Love you large.